Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it's my huge pleasure to welcome Amanda Puccini to the G Word podcast today. Amanda is a consultant genetic counsellor with us at Genomics England. Amanda, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Chris. It's nice to be here. You work with us on these themes around genetic counselling. You've developed a huge amount of expertise in this area. Maybe take us right back to the beginning. How did you get into this field and you know, what does a genetic counsellor do day to day? Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's a good question. So I really enjoyed when I was in school science. I found genetics fascinating and it was an aspect of biology that just made sense. That's what I was studying. But I also liked working with people and I found the ability to help people making difficult decisions really rewarding. And in particular, the kind of ripple effect that this has for other family members can be really hard, but really fulfilling as well. So I did a number of things to sort of learn about different careers in that area, came across genetic counselling. It can be really hard to get experience in the genetics world from the beginning, um, but I was fortunate enough to be able to work with uh, Dr. Steve Shearer, who's a researcher. He's done a lot of work, uh, particularly with autism spectrum disorder. And I was calling lab after lab individually and somehow reached him on the end of the phone directly. And he was able to offer me a summer student position, uh, which really helped me sort of move into other areas and then found genetic counseling and did my training at the University of Toronto in Canada. It's a theme that has come up a few times in conversations on the G word that it, it feels like an opaque field to kind of break into if you're a kid or a student or whatever. What what degree did you do? And it sounds like you were very proactive in getting that um, internship. And do you think there's more that we can do to make it less opaque for people who are interested in getting into the field? Absolutely. I did a biology degree, but many of my genetic counselling colleagues have come from a degree in psychology or nursing or midwifery, or they were a health visitor before that. So it's fairly broad. When I was first hearing about the career, a lot of the programs ask that you have volunteer experience, for example, with a crisis hotline, somewhere where you can gain some people experience. And also if you can volunteer or shadow in an existing genetic service, that's a real asset. But that's really hard to do. And when I was starting out, um, there was nobody else that wanted to volunteer in the genetic service where I went to university in London, Ontario. Uh, whereas a few years after that, there was already a huge waiting list for people to do that. So I think we're almost in a position now where knowledge of genetic counseling as a profession has grown hugely, which is great, but there's almost not enough experiences for people to be able to do to gain knowledge in the field and enough that they need to do to have a good quality application to get into the program. I think where some programs have really helped is looking at a broader birth of skill sets and saying, well, maybe you haven't volunteered in a crisis line, or maybe you haven't 
worked or volunteered in another genetic service, but you've had a job or life experiences that really contributed to why you bring some good skill sets to the field. People don't have to come into it directly after their undergrad degree. Having worked as a nurse or a midwife or in a completely unrelated field can really, I think, benefit in terms of a skill set that we need in the kind of workforce of genetic counsellors. So I think kind of accepting a different sort of broader birth of experiences that people might bring to the table would really help. And also not everyone has the ability to volunteer necessarily, or you're volunteering on top of a job that you're working and that can be really hard. So um, there's a need to kind of accept, a, I think, a broader range of experiences to come into this. For sure. So that was a, a slight sidestep, but take us back to you did your biology degree. You kind of proactively rang around and, and found an internship. What happened next? Uh, well, once I did my degree, I worked in the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, uh, which is where I did my training. And it was a really interesting job because I was half sort of in a clinical role working with a pediatrician um, with some particular syndromes that affected children in a pediatric setting. But then I also worked in a genetics lab. We were kind of applying those skills that a genetic counsellor has rather than speaking directly to patients, but more speaking to healthcare professionals that themselves wanted to order genetic tests, but either needed some help to be able to order the right one or just tick lots of boxes. But you knew when you looked at the order form that ordering all of those tests on one patient didn't really correlate with what they were asking for. And maybe there was some education that could happen to help that clinician do it better next time. So that's where our skill set came in and speaking to them and writing a lot of the reports and hopefully a, a user-friendly way, both for clinicians and the patients that would be receiving them. And that I think was really helpful too when I moved to the UK, to Bristol, and got involved in the Bristol Genetic Service, as well as the 100,000 Genomes Project and a lot of other education initiatives for healthcare professionals that were increasingly starting to order more genetic and genomic tests. Got it. And so I guess across both of those experiences, you know, we talk a lot about human stories at Genomics England. I mean, you must have been right on the, the front line of tons of human stories. What kind of challenges do families, individuals face who are coming through these kinds of services? And what did you learn about how we can best support them on that journey? Yeah, and I think that really goes back to what the role of genetic counsellors is and what they do, because as a term, I think that invokes a lot of different feelings in different people. Some people maybe don't want to engage with genetic counsellors because they see it as counselling and kind of trying to fix me from a psychological point of view. So I don't want to be here. I just want to get the test. So in some sense, a lot of that discussion that we have with patients at the beginning of a session is explaining what a genetic counsellor is and do they know why they're here speaking to a genetic counsellor? They may have been referred by a GP or by a pediatrician and don't really have much insight into what the appointment is going to involve, or they have really clear aims about what they want out of the appointment. And I think importantly, genetic counseling, to me, it's not just talking about a genetic test, nor is it about just testing parents to see if they're carriers after a child's been diagnosed with a condition or the person that talks about your reproductive options when you want to have another child. It's a lot more than that. It's, navigating those difficult decisions when you're in a situation where you have a genetic risk or a family member has just been diagnosed with something and you need to know if that's going to have an impact on your life and your future. 
It's about adapting to that risk and diagnosis that it may be that you've got a result already there, but it has an impact on so many aspects of your day to day life, both health wise and not so health wise, and needing to sort of make sense of all those threads that sort of feed out from that genetic result and needing to just have some space and time to talk through it with someone thinking about the coping strategies that you're using and that you might need, making sense of all those sort of uncertainties that you're dealing with now and in the future. And then there's also some genetic results that are just really unusual and complex. So really, I think genetic counseling is able to take all of those threads and pull it together and give people and families that space and time to really think about it so that hopefully they can adapt to that information that could come at a particularly crisis point in their lives and make that a lot easier. Yeah. And within sort of the the boundaries of kind of patient patient confidentiality and so on, are there any families or individuals that kind of stick in your mind that I guess sort of bring that to life? Yeah, I'm thinking about kind of two different situations, I guess. In my first role in Toronto, I dealt a lot with families where they had children who had Turner syndrome. And Turner syndrome is a, a condition where individuals are born with one less sex chromosome. So they have one X chromosome rather than two X chromosomes or one X and a Y chromosome typically. And these girls are either born with a heart defect sometimes. So it's really apparent because they have that or because they're much shorter than expected for their age. Or it could be that it comes when they have issues with development at puberty and issues with fertility. So it's a broad syndrome that has lots of different features and no one person is the same as is the case with really any genetic condition. And with each of those families, I think there were some common threads, but also things that were different to that family. But I think a common theme that would often come up when it was picked up early is how am I going to make sense of all the potential future things that might happen with my child, even though they're just a few months or a few years old? How am I going to talk about the fact that my daughter might not be able to have her own sort of biological children in the future as a concept, as a new parent, that's so difficult for me to make sense of. And even though it's so far away, I'm really worried about thinking about having to have that conversation in the future. Um, How am I going to sort of talk to them about how they might be different at school or might find some challenges in terms of their learning. You know, at that point when you're getting that diagnosis, it's just your mind is going in so many different directions and you're thinking about the future, even though you're sort of dealing with that diagnosis in the present. And so often we might talk about, and I'm thinking about that family, one family in particular where that came up, it's often just trying to break things down in steps that, you know, it's perfectly natural to be thinking about that whole life course that that person's going to have. And that for you as a parent, that's really new and a real shock. And that's completely understandable. But for that child, this is going to be their normal. That syndrome, if it's Turner syndrome in this case, is just one part of who they are and one part of their life. And they may have questions. And it's very reasonable to then think about how you're going to answer that child's questions as and when they ask them. It's not going to have to be a one huge dumping of information that comes on the child's 10th birthday that you have to tell them everything they need to know. Often it's kind of slowly feeding that information over time based on the questions that they have that seems to work the best. Um, And there's lots of, you know, great resources 
there's some really great for certain conditions storybooks out there that people have written to help sort of facilitate that conversation that a parent might have with their child about why they might have some differences and why that's potentially a good thing and that's going to be normal for them. So I think a lot of what we try and do with families is just navigating through a lot of those uncertainties and how we can ground things a little bit in we might not be able to predict everything that could happen in the future, but here's some of the skills that you might have now that you're telling me you might have to be able to deal with that and help make that a seamless experience as much as possible for that family as they get older. And you mentioned trying to write things in a user-friendly way, both for clinicians and for patients and families. One of the things I think that is often hardest to explain about genetics is we're often talking about probabilities of probabilities, right? Or like, well, you're three times as likely as normal to have this condition, but actually the average risk of it is only one in 500. So even though you're three times as likely, it's still hugely unlikely to ever happen to you. Have you found any kind of, uh, I don't know, do you have any tips and tricks about good good or bad ways to try and explain these kind of statistics of statistics points to you know normal busy stressed human beings yeah and uh i can't think of many people that really enjoyed statistics if you had to take statistics so the whole concept of it is really challenging there's a lot of different ways i think the most important tip to remember i find is patients or individuals often come into an appointment or where they know there's a genetic condition in their family. And to them, that risk, or at least the number, might already be very clear in their minds. So it could be that they've had a condition in their family where their sibling has had three children, all of whom have had that condition. So in their mind, the chance that they'll have a child with that condition is 100% because it's happened like that to their sibling. So explaining that it's actually a one in four risk or 25%, is going to be much more difficult to integrate into their self-concept because that's what's happened in their family. Or if it's a situation where all the males in that person's family have been the ones that have gotten cancer and they're a male themselves, then they may feel that's an inevitability for them, even though the genetic condition really doesn't distinguish between males and females. It just may, may be that that's what's happened in the family. So your first step is trying to understand where that person's coming from and saying, well, what's your impression about how likely this is or not? And tell me a bit about your family story that might help me make sense about what your reference point is. Going beyond that, it's trying to use a lot of different ways, both verbal, written, visual, to kind of help explain some of these concepts. And once you have that background of where that individual is coming from, it can be a lot more helpful. But It could be things like just sketching out their family history, showing it to them and explaining how inheritance works in that sense could be helpful because it's more real when they're seeing it about their family. It could be that showing a diagram about and explaining how our genes are passed on can really help anchor it and make sense for people and trying to explain it in really simple terms. I mean, I rarely talk about A's, T's, C's and G's at that level because really we're talking about genes and how things are passed on in families and more about what that means. So unless people really want to get in the science and the detail, it might be not so helpful to explain it in that way. No, that that makes a ton of sense. I think your answer is a great answer, right? Which is kind of, it depends on the person um, and where their head is at. And, you know, maybe 
by some bizarre coincidence, the person in front of you is a professor of statistics or whatever, or, you know, maybe they hated maths and stopped it at GCSE or whatever, or somewhere in between being cognizant of the person in front of you and how they're processing information, how they see the world, and then kind of working with that. It does make me reflect on there's this whole theme of genomics is coming more and more into the mainstream. Um, we're now scaling up things that were once a project, like the 100,000 Genomes Project is now the foundation for the genomic medicine service in the NHS. More and more people are going to be having these insights form part of their wellness and their, their healthcare going forwards. And there's, there's a question which we've debated a bit around what does that mean in terms of the role of genetic counselors? Do we need 100,000 genetic counselors, right? Um, do we, there are, there are people who would argue quite persuasively that actually a lot of this could or should be done using things like chatbots or text, not necessarily AI driven, potentially with a, a person on the other end and so on. And we know that from things like suicide hotlines, actually incredibly sensitive human topics, actually sometimes people feel more comfortable using an interface like a chatbot than actually talking to another human being because it can be embarrassing or sensitive or whatever. But what you're saying there says to me, this human to human contact is so important, right? It's such a huge part, not just of the emotional part of this, but also of the just the practical under getting your head around what's going on, right? This is a probably an impossible question, but like, how do we reconcile these things, Amanda? What's the answer? <laughs> if I had the answer, maybe the platform, we'd all be sort of, you know, have none of these issues anymore. No, it's, it's complex. I think that the key is having a sort of almost like a suite of different things available, because we don't want to be, if I'm thinking about, say, how do we educate other healthcare professionals that are in practice at the moment, or are learning to be one, we don't want to sort of be telling them a very formulaic way to be talking about genetics or genomics with their patient population or in their community. We want them to have the skills to be able to be flexible to suit different people's needs. And to me, that means having information like a chatbot, for example, that can help provide answers to some of those informative questions that might mean that then as a genetic counselor, we're able to work at the top of our scope and really focus on the individual needs and questions and concerns that that person or family has that a chatbot may not be able to answer with that particular human touch is great. And we can work in collaboration with a lot of those tools to help make our work better. I'd also add that where there have been chatbots used in genetic healthcare, having a genetic counselor behind that in terms of being involved in the development of what that chatbot's going to be able to do and say and how that information's conveyed really I think contributes to its success. So there's a sense of the healthcare professional adding to the thing that's going to later help them as a technology. I think we also want to be able to provide information in in layers. So for some people they might want the bare minimum to be able to make a decision and say, well, I'm happy with that. I trust you as my healthcare provider. So having had a five minute conversation is enough for me to know what I want to do. And for others, they really want to delve more into the details. So we need to be able to have access to other digital or written tools to be able to do that. And in my mind, an ideal world is one where we've got that flexibility to accommodate to whatever needs a person has, if they're comfortable with digital tools, if they're not comfortable with digital tools, if they want to just have someone that can hear out their concerns. And I think the last couple of years have really maybe shown that we like having human contact and miss that. So 
being able to have access to that when we need it is really important. It turns out humans like other humans, right? <laughs> exactly. No surprise. Which is probably a good thing. Yeah. So would it would it be fair to, I guess, as you were saying that, I would I kind of had a mental model in my head of saying, right, actually, the, the way that we need to scale this is from, this is maybe oversimplifying, but to go from a model of one-to-one, one, one genetic counsellor in a room with one patient or, or one family to a kind of many-to-many relationship that it's not necessarily quote-unquote, just a genetic counsellor, but also the other healthcare professionals who are kind of involved in that journey being more engaged and, and being able to have more of those conversations, but also many channels. They're so not just one-to-one in a room, but where it's appropriate digital, where it's appropriate remote, where it's appropriate other stuff, but not losing that kind of gold standard of the real intimate, you know, human connection that is sometimes, you know, what's what's needed to help get someone uh, through, a, through a situation. Absolutely. And I think genetic counselors are used to working in a very sort of broad multidisciplinary team where we want to be able to act as advocates for our patients and link them up with support groups, which might be in person or very often online, especially with rare conditions that span internationally and say, well, here's some other communities and forums that you can go to that would be really helpful for you or being able to liaise with their GP or their pediatrician or the nurse specialist that's helping to manage them and saying, now that we've sort of talked about the condition, you've got an idea about what that means for you and your family. As you go on in care, we want to make sure that the other healthcare professionals that are helping you and supporting you are able to answer some of those questions and kind of contribute to some of those conversations that genomics might become a part of. And that, I think, is really how we need to be thinking about it to scale up. We we talk a lot about mainstreaming. Mainstreaming, I think, doesn't mean without genetic specialists. It just means that we're trying to think a bit more about how we integrate the specialists with the non-specialists so that patients have access to all the right kinds of support when they need it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great point about sort of patient communities that ideally, I guess that becomes a dialogue between those communities and the kind of communities of genetic counsellors and associated professions, right? Because they will, those patient communities will have the best view on, you know, what, what's most useful for most people with that condition or whatever. That's that's a great point. I, I, we touched on this briefly earlier, but I think there are a bunch of, I guess, specific circumstances around children and young people who are coming through these kinds of treatment pathways or having these kinds of conversations. With my Genomics England hat on, in the 100,000 Genomes Project, a lot of the participants were young children and their families. We've just announced a major program around um, doing a research pilot in, in tandem with the NHS around using whole genome sequencing in the context of newborn uh, screening. Help us to understand a bit about the, I guess, special situation that either young children or then growing into kind of kids, teenagers, young people. How do we need to think about helping those young people through these kinds of situations? Yeah, um, I mean, I think there are some unique features about being an adolescent. It's often a time we maybe want to forget, but you're either way, you're going through lots of transitions. And so having to make decisions about a genomic test in that time that might have future implications for you or being landed with a diagnosis of a condition at that time whilst you're dealing with other challenges just makes that so much harder. I think there's also quite a gap in that a lot of information that's out there for for patients with rare diseases, for example, is tailored towards either 
this is what this means for your child or this is what this means for you as an adult. Um, and we've got a gap in between where we're not necessarily catering to people in that age group. Whilst I was doing my master's in genetic counseling, the research project I focused on was interviewing adolescents that had a diagnosis of a genetic condition and what their experience was with genetic counseling. And it was a small study, but I think we found some helpful suggestions for practice, including adolescents are in that time where they're trying to form their beliefs and values. A lot of things are coming into their own sort of identity and thinking about how having a genetic condition makes them more similar or different to their peers and how they manage that is really crucial. We don't often give enough attention to whether a young person wants to be seen on their own versus with their parent. And again, that can be very individual. Some people feel that they like having their parent there because they really rely on them for support. And it's much easier having them hear the same information they're hearing than having to relay it to them afterwards. For others, it's really important to have that sense of growing independence. And maybe you want to ask questions about a condition that you have that is chronic or potentially life-limiting or where it's going to impact the decisions you have for your children in the future. And talking about that starting even in early adolescence, I don't think is necessarily too early because it's questions that people have coming to their mind. And maybe they'd rather talk about that without their parent in the room because they these are questions that they feel are very sensitive and they don't want their parents to worry about them, for example. And without wanting to like stereotype kids at different ages i'm guessing that for most kind of six to eight year olds that's probably too complex a conversation and for most kind of 16 to 18 year olds it's a totally appropriate conversation what happens along that journey how can we tell when it's appropriate or helpful to have a conversation with someone by themselves with or like without their parents i think a lot comes down to working with their parents and it depends when you're able to start that relationship with them so if that's a child that's had a condition since they were young and you've you've got a, a relationship with their parents, then you're able to have some conversations as that child's getting older in terms of well, what kind of questions are they asking and um, what are the things that you as a parent are worried about? How have you talked about this with your child so that you're really working with them so that you're not bringing on any sudden surprises that make both the child and the parents uncomfortable? Um, if you've got that ongoing relationship, it's much more helpful. Sometimes when we're maybe seeing a family for the first time and we know that that person is 12 or 13 or 14, where we can, it can be really helpful to speak to the parents in advance if we can and just give them a call and say, look, this is what we're planning to discuss at the appointment. It'd be really helpful to know what you and your child knows and understands and what questions they have. Would it be feasible to sometimes split the appointment where we start having some discussions all together as a family, but try and give a bit of time for the um, young person to be able to ask some questions by themselves. We're seeing that a lot now as families that went through the 100,000 Genomes Project, many of whom were children, are reaching the age when they now have to make a decision about whether they want to continue to remain in the project or not. And for some children that took place now quite a few years ago, and they may have been more or less involved in that discussion at the time. So really working with that family to say, well, what do they understand about the project already? Do they have an understanding about being a participant and what that means? And how can we sort of send them information and talk to them about it in a way that means that they can now make an informed decision to understand what will happen with their data from sort of here on into the future as they're thinking about it? Yeah. And there's, there's an interesting question in my mind about 
like studies that are focused specifically on young people. So for example, we're doing some work with a study up in, um, in Bradford called Born in Bradford. This was a birth cohort study quite a few years ago. The participants in that study are just turning kind of 14, 15 at the moment. And at 16, um, we'll need to make a decision about they want to, whether they want to like reconsent for their data being used um, for research. The first question in my mind is just how on earth can we reach those kids, right? They're going to be out kind of at school or, you know, playing sport or hanging out with their mates or whatever. I've suggested a couple of times that we'd need to have a genomics England uh, TikTok channel or, you know, is TikTok the answer or how do, how do we engage with, uh, with busy kids for whom this may be something that's just so far down their list of things that they think about? Yeah, it's really challenging. And especially like in situations like you mentioned with Born in Bradford, where it's, you know, probably more of a, a sort of quote unquote healthy cohort where they're not necessarily going to lots of medical appointments. And it's something we've been thinking about a lot as we've been designing the newborn genomes program, because whilst we're having to think a lot about what to do for those newborns at that time, given they may be giving permission for their data to be looked at and used for research and that that could carry on in the future, we have to think about how in 16 or 17 years time, those newborns might be thinking about this. I think it really comes back to setting up systems at the beginning as much as possible, which we've got the opportunity to do with the newborn genomes program to really establish an ongoing relationship with participants and how you communicate with them. So whether that means you've got an app or an online forum, or a means that which your participants who might initially be parents of that newborn and eventually be those children and young people as they get older can interact with. It could be things as simple as, and I know the chair of our participant panel, Jillian mentioned this in a paper recently, that even just sending things at a participant's birthday or something as simple as that helps them remind them that they're part of something uh, and why it's important that we have that kind of two-way relationship. So as much as possible as we're embarking on these new initiatives, that we think about how we can have an ongoing relationship with those families means that those conversations as they become children and young people will get easier and it will be part of one of the many things that they're doing as an adolescent rather than something that they may have had no concept of or completely forgotten or were never told that they were part of. And we'd want to really avoid that as much as possible. I guess we would probably not, uh, or we probably shouldn't be in the business of sending them sweets and chocolate at their birthday, but we could we could uh, try and think yeah. of healthy alternatives. <laughs> exactly. Excellent. And so you've mentioned the newborns program, which in its full scope is, you know, potentially a, a lifelong relationship with uh, those participants if if their parents choose to opt in when when they're born and then if they choose to opt in as they become more mature maybe linking that back to this concept of of counseling although i think it's maybe a, a slightly tangential relationship how could we think about helping people get their head around a kind of lifelong relationship with the genome oh that's a good question <laughs> i think it comes back to how we socialize the concept of genomics in a way, which I know we've been talking about a lot at Genomics England and a lot of other groups are thinking about that as well. And not so much socializing genomics as a term. I don't think that's necessarily the most important because genomics is often a term that people have never heard about or it's very sciencey and they're not really sure how to engage with that. But thinking about it as more of 
it's a component that makes up who you are. It's part of your family life. And your family life starts from when you're born and the relationships you have with your parents and your siblings. And as you get older, and as you may be thinking about starting a family and thinking about what that means for you as well, that there's going to be different time points across an individual's life where genomics or the concept of a condition or risk or some kind of impact on health is going to come into play. And the more we kind of incorporate that into broader discussions about health, because in many ways, genomics isn't entirely exceptional, it just might make us, for example, think about a wider impact on our family, perhaps more so than some elements of health might do. So the more we can think about it in that kind of way, I think is really helpful. And I think where we can also draw on the experiences of of patients and families that have been really living through this, you can see at the moment when a diagnosis is made, how much that has a lifelong impact, even if that happens in the newborn period. We were able to make so many diagnoses in the 100,000 Genomes Project, which was powerful for so many reasons. For a few, that meant there was a change in management. For many, it didn't mean that their clinical care, that clinical care really changed much, but it helped in other ways. It meant that families were talking about, you know, this being proof to remove the guilt that they felt early on in their lives about what might have caused their child's condition, or that they're able to give reassurance to their other children about the children they might have in the future, um, or even just being able to inform their child's school and giving a name to the condition that they had to help give them extra support. And all of these things sort of have ramifications at various points over a lifetime. So where we're able to sort of show those stories and where people have experience of that, I think it's really clear that genetics and genomics has a real lifelong impact to it. That's hugely inspiring. Amanda, thanks so much for making the time to explain some of this to us today, for sharing some of the the benefits of your experience. Really looking forward to seeing all of these fields kind of develop and uh, grow. We're living in uh, extremely exciting times. Thanks again for making the time. Thank you, Chris. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.